Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. Uh, these first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. Uh, the What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, uh, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc., so what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, uh, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Richard Hurd, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to do this. And just by way of quick introduction, you are the founder and president of Hurd Real Estate, which is a super regional real estate investment and development company. Uh, I think you said you guys have properties in over 20 states in the U.S. And you have about 40 years in this game. And I, I know it's been a long path uh, that we're going to get into today, talking about your life story, your early career, well, your early entrepreneurial activities, then your early career, and finally getting into uh, the commercial real estate game that you're involved in today. So thank you for joining me on this journey. And I guess to kick it off, let's just go back to the beginning and could you please tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, um, and and we'll go from there. Well, I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. I uh, grew up in a middle-class neighborhood in the south side of Des Moines, Iowa. I went to public school and, um, you know, it was pretty, pretty typical of that era. Um, I'm a baby boomer. All my father, all my friends fathers were World War II vets. And, um, you know, it was kind of like if you watch any of the old TV shows, um, everybody lived on the same, lived on the same street, all had pretty much the same standard of living, same 
you know, station wagon, the mom stayed home and so forth. So it was pretty typical for a baby boomer um, upbringing. Had a great time. Got my first job was uh, being a paper boy. I was around 10 and uh, that was a lot of good experience there learning how to deal with all the trials and tribulations of the weather in the Midwest, <clears throat> excuse me, in the winter time to try to get the papers delivered. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, as I got older and, and in high school, I got a job working at a gas station and worked at a gas station all the way through um, high school. So it was, there's really nothing unusual about my uh, childhood and upbringing other than it was pretty much what you see and what you'd expect for a baby boomer. Mm. And those growing up in Iowa, I imagine the winter time is quite brutal there. How, how cold does it get in the winter time in Iowa? Well, I mean, it just, you know, it gets, it gets below zero and you get snow. So, I mean, that's, you know, those are the issues when you're, when you're a paper boy, but, uh, and then the summertime it gets hot and humid. So we have, we have the extreme high and extreme lows. Extreme high, extreme lows. Very cool. And then, so you mentioned uh, high school, and this is where um, I also, you are the father of a, a friend of mine. So that's how I've heard some of these stories secondhand. But the, as we were talking offline, the first, I, I guess this is the first entrepreneurial activity you got into was buying and selling cars in high school. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Like what exactly were you doing and you know, what were you looking out for and how were you, how were you turning a profit? Well, I, it's, again, it was generational. So, you know, my generation, cars were kind of like cell phones and computers are for kids today. That was your freedom. Um, that's how you saw your friends. You got in your car and you drove to McDonald's and you all, you know, hung out there. That's where you connected. You know, now kids don't need to do that. They just get on their cell phone and, and either text or, you know, call or whatever method of communication. But so cars were a big deal for, for our generation. The other thing to keep in mind is that the cost to have a car back then relative to wages, you know, purchasing power for a kid back in the late sixties was much greater than it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, I was buying, I mean, my first car was like $1,200. I could make $2 an hour working at a gas station, but you can do the math. I mean, you can afford it as a kid. And uh, so I started buying cars and actually started washing cars for some of the people on my paper route, if you want to know the truth. Um, when I was like 12 or 13 in the summertime, I would deliver their paper, then go back and wash their car and get paid for that. And then I bought my first car when I was 15 and um, couldn't drive it till I was 16, but fix it up. And, you know, some of the kids at school, somebody wanted it. So I sold it and bought another one and, just repeated that time and time again throughout high school. And then I started buying other types of vehicles like pickup trucks and things like that. And my 
driving my dad crazy because I'd bring home all this stuff and he'd say, there's no room in the driveway. Don't buy anything else. So I started parking him a block away. <laughs> he, he, uh, he wasn't too impressed with that. Um, and then, you know, if I get in trouble or lose my license, the problem is he couldn't keep track of how many vehicles I had. So he didn't know if I was driving or not, which I obviously was, but shouldn't have been. So that, you know, that was kind of what happened during high school. Turned out, you know, it turned out to be a good experience. I mean, it gives you the opportunity to look and try to understand what the market is, what values are and what people want. And can you buy something, improve it and turn around and sell it to somebody for a price that they'll pay and you can actually make a profit. So that's what I did. Do you think you were born with this inkling to be entrepreneurial and, and try to assess what people want and buy low, sell high, or is this something you just kind of fell into or how do you, how do you think? Oh, I, th I think some of it's innate. I think some of it also is just the desire to improve. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were very middle-class. There was nobody on our block had more than one car. So when dad was away at work, moms didn't have any transportation as a kid. And I think it just, you know, you aspire to do better, right? So as a kid, um, again, you have to realize the time frame. Having a nice car was a big deal because it was the way that you got around. It's the way you, it was the way you were able to, you know, show people that you're actually doing something rather than doing nothing. Mm. So um, we just, to me, it was just, okay, I got to do this in order to make some money so I can actually have a car, number one. And then once I got one and I wanted to get a better one, it's just, it's no different than any business, you know, it's just small scale. I mean, it's just a kid wanting to improve themselves, improve their position, no different than you know, a tech company, you know, trying to get the next technological idea or advancement or buying a competitor, you know, you're trying to improve. It's just really small scale. And I think for me, a lot of it was just how I'm wired, but because mm. you know, I had a lot of friends that didn't do that. Most of my friends frankly didn't do that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So some of it's just, you know, who you are, quite frankly. Yeah. 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 I'm sure there's a, there's gotta be a nature component to it to some extent. Otherwise you wouldn't keep doing it. Was there a nurture component too? Like, was this something that your, your parents encouraged you uh, to pursue more or how, how, how did that relationship work out? Well, my, um, my parents were divorced. I lived with my dad. He worked all the time. So, but he had his own business. And so I think I get all this from him. Mm. He was very independent. He, he and my grandfather had a sign company and um, he always encouraged me to be independent and be entrepreneurial thinking all, all the time. Don't, he, he encouraged me to do well in school, but he also told me, don't just follow the, the books, you know, mm -hmm. think uh, outside of what the books teach you take what you can get from the school and apply it to real life. And my dad 
and most people probably listening to this either aren't don't have parents that were World War II vets, but um, maybe you have grandparents. But those that generation was the most. They had the most ingenuity of anybody I've ever known. They they could take you know bailing wire and duct tape and fix about anything. Those guys were taught. You don't call a specialist to fix the problem. You fix the problem yourself. Hmm. You th think about what what is it going to take to fix this, and then you set about doing it. And every father of every friend I had who was a World War II vet had that ability. They were taught that when you're out there in the field, there's nobody to call. You got to, you got to think on your own, think on your feet, think fast and get a solution and implement it. And I think that was impactful for me because my, my dad was that way. I mean, they, he always told me, don't call somebody else. You think about it and you figure it out. What's it going to take? You buy a, I buy a, one time I bought a truck. It didn't have any brakes. And I didn't know that until I bought it. He says, well, you know, you're halfway across the lake. You better keep swimming because you own it. So I learned how to fix the brakes. I mean, there, there's a lot of lessons from, from that generation that was passed down to uh, my generation. I think were just invaluable, quite frankly. Mm. Yeah. I I'm sure uh, we, we've drifted so far from that now, like even uh, even looking at myself, someone that tries to be self-sufficient, uh, I can't fix anything with duct tape and bailing water. Um, so we've become, I guess, as we've become more comfortable in the U.S., we've become a little bit softer, too. Um, so we probably lost a lot of that wisdom that, that people like your father had had earned the hard way, presumably. Um, okay. So, so the buying and selling cars, like, is this something you did throughout high school? Like how did this become a business? Like how, was it just a hobby? How, how often or how engaged were you in that, in that activity? Well, it was not a business. It was a means to an end, right? It was a way for me to end up with a better car mm -hmm. all the time. Every, every time I sold one and made a profit, bought a better one. So by the time I was in a junior in high school, I was driving Corvettes because I started with Chevys. Hmm. And I kept buying them, selling them, and and I was able to buy Corvettes, which was pretty good for a high school kid. Um, graduated at seven, 17 and in 1970, and that was the period of time where they had enacted the lottery for the draft during the Vietnam period, and there was no deferment. So you if you got a low number, you're going to be drafted. Mm. So my buddies and I all being the smart high school kids we were, we thought, well, we'll just, we'll just go look at enlisting and then that way we won't get drafted and we'll at least have a better shot at where, what we do. And so anyway, long story short, we, we did that. And since I wasn't 18, I had to get my dad's permission, but it turned out to be a good thing because 
you know, we graduated, all of us went in the service. I went in at 17 and um, I really could use the discipline, quite frankly, that, that is something that I hated at the time, but I have to tell you, it was really good for me because it did. There was no talking your way out of it. I mean, you, you're there, they own you, you do what they say, or there's a place called the stockade where that you will reside. So it was good. I mean, it was good for me, quite frankly, I never got in that much trouble in the service, but you know, when you're a high schooler, you, you don't obey. There's limited things that the school or your parents can do to you military back in those days, at least there's a lot of things they could do to you. So it was good for me. Hmm. Did your dad support that when you, t- I assume you went to your dad and said, Hey, I want oh, yeah. to enlist. And he just fully supported that. Yeah. And what he said was, look, um, there are, there's a number of different ways you could go. Number one, you can take your chances with a lottery. We'll see what your number is. You get a low number you're gone. Number two, you can enlist. If you enlist, you get a chance to choose. And he gave me some great advice. And that was you, if you enlist, I would suggest you go to the Navy or the Air Force, because if you go to one of those branches, you're either on a ship or on a base. If you go to the Army or the Marines, you're going to be infantry, you're going to be in the, you know, you're going to be out you know, on the rice paddies. Uh-huh. So he said, pick one of those other two and enlist in one of those. And at least you'll be on a base. And it turned out we didn't, I never went anywhere, but uh-huh. you know, in the U S and came back, went in the guard, we converted just, it was really not a big deal. Uh, as far as the service portion of it, you know, I had a lot of friends that were, you know, went to Vietnam, we never came close to going overseas. So, but it was good experience for me. It really was. The experience of just going through, I guess you went through boot camp and. Oh yeah. 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 And tech school and just going from an environment where you didn't, you weren't required to do everything that you were told to do an environment where you had no choice but to do everything Uh, you were told to do uh, and you know i think a lot of times young people myself definitely falls into this category was that i needed that i needed that structure at that point and it i think it helped me a lot quite frankly uh, and not everybody needs it but some of us do and i was one of them that really needed it you so do you think it was the discipline that, or uh, disciplinary framework, uh, uh, perhaps it was a very tight schedule, I imagine, that when you were enlisted, you were doing certain things at the same time every day. Are those the types of things that benefited you later in life? Or, or what specifically do you think, uh, specific lessons, I guess, that you gleaned there that helped you going forward in life? Well, number I mean, I was a, fairly rebellious kid. So, I mean, just to be candid about it. So that's why it was good. I think it was good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my friends were not as rebellious as I was. Um, I think that 
the realization that if you want to, let's back up a minute. If I wanted to advance in life in any way, shape or form, either educationally, economically, um, just in a social setting, I needed to change a lot of the things that I was doing. You couldn't go through life being a rebellious teenager, right? I mean, that doesn't work when you get into your 20s. Um, so I realized that if I wanted to improve, I needed to, I needed to change the way I was approaching life in a lot of ways. And it gave me the structure to do that. It's not, it's not the repetitiveness. I think it was the realization that there are rules and regulations in this world mm. and in the U S and if you want to succeed, there are certain things that you need to do in order to achieve your goals. You want, and I'd always been pretty good at goal setting. And um, so I knew that I wanted to do better um, from a financial standpoint. I knew that I wanted to do better from, you know, an education standpoint. And in order to achieve that, I needed to do these things. And the military kind of gave you a perspective that here's the structure. You can, you can either like it or don't. I did not like the structure of the military. It was too much for me. Uh-huh. But it's kind of like if you think about a pendulum, if you swing all the way over to one side, uh-huh. that's where I was. Uh-huh. They're on the other side, and it gets you back a little bit more toward the center. Uh-huh. And that was good. And it so when I got out of, you know, when I came home and then I went to college, you know, I was able to conform to the, you know, what professors wanted and so forth, even though, um, I struggled big time to find my way. You know, I, I was not particularly interested in the subject matter that I was being taught in college. And now, you know, that's just the fact. I mean, I did it, but it was, I didn't, I wasn't one of these kids that says, Hey, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be a dentist. I'm going to be an attorney. I'm going to be a CP. That was, I had none of those aspirations hmm. at that point. Hmm. You mentioned one other thing about the military service. You mentioned the stockade, I think was the term you used. Mm-hmm. That's, that? the, that's what they call the prison. I mean, they have stockade is the, that's their on base prison. Basically they lock you up. Okay. So you yeah. don't conform to the, the framework of what? Well, if you do, well, I mean, you have all these rules, right? So yeah. you, You've, you you got to be on duty at 0600. That means yeah. you're on duty at 0600. It doesn't mean you show up like going to high school, you know, you 10 minutes late and they slap you on the wrist. No, if, you, if you're not there, if you, you had to meet all the rules back then. I mean, right. I right. presume it's still the same today, but yeah, I mean, you, you didn't, there was no leeway. There was no right. deviation, right? So the stockade was just, they, you know, some people, and I did see some guys get put in there for not for long periods. You know, you go to the stockade for a day or two, give you another chance. And that's what it was about. I was never put in the stockade. I, I was not about to, one of the things 
that I learned from my dad also is a man's got to know his limitations. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me that I could not compete with the military. Mm -hmm. They're going to tell me what to do. And I was not about to get in a position where I was going head to head with the DI or the, one of the officers. I just let it, you know, but that again, that was part of the learning process. Right. Right. And it helps you, helps you realize how the structure of our society works. Yeah. I can imagine that would be difficult for a rebellious young man uh, just to come into a circumstances of very hard laws, right? Iron, iron laws, I guess. Um, But also I would imagine that you'd take away a lot of self-discipline from that. Not that you, not that you would lack it before, but maybe you could, make your self-discipline more structured, right? You maybe learned things following that structure that you could then import into your lifestyle. Right? I'm, I'm assuming. Um, okay. That's all, all really interesting to hear about. So military service, and then you go into college and you said right. you weren't, weren't particularly interested in the subject matter you were studying, which was. Liberal arts. I just came back went to college, really more interested in just, you know, something to do at that point. I mean, you got to keep in mind, you know, I was still pretty young. And so um, it, you know, just didn't appeal to me. And so I, again, talking to my dad one day, um, and you also got to keep in mind, my parents were divorced. I lived with my dad all through. So I talked to my mom too, but it wasn't quite the same as um, it was with my dad, because he's the one that I lived with mm-hmm. for six years. Anyhow, anyhow, um, and I'm talking to him and I did, he says, well, what do you think? You know, you got some, you know, perspective on what you want to do. What are you going to study? What are you going to be? I said, I have absolutely no idea. Mm-hmm. N- you know, nothing's, nothing's ringing true with me that uh, taking, I really don't know what to tell you. And so he suggested that, you know, I take a look at real estate Mm. and it was his view that, um, that could be a match for me. So that's, that's where the idea came from. It was not my idea to go into real estate. It was my father's Hmm. and parents having an, you know, a unique ability to see things in their kids that, kids don't see in themselves a lot of times. He saw something in me that where he thought that I could possibly be good at, uh, you know, dealing with real estate. So he encouraged me to do that. Were you still into cars at that time? Were you, when you came back, were you doing the car? Oh, not a little, not nearly as much. Times had changed. I mean, you have to have the context of the era. Cars were a big deal up until the early 70s. And then they changed the cars and they were no longer fast and they were no longer as big a deal. And so it wasn't it. And I was no longer in high school. So finding, you know, buying cars and selling them to high schoolers wasn't probably. You just so I'd kind of phased out of that and I was going to going to college and didn't really have time to mess with it as much, you know, then 
So, you know, the, the, how the real estate thing was my dad's idea. And he said, you know, you, you had done really well, um, acknowledging and recognizing value in cars. He says, I think you could do it in real estate too, if you apply yourself. And I said, well, I really don't know anything about it. Um, cars, I understand they're pretty simple for me. Real estate, I don't understand. It's a much bigger number to buy it. Um, it involves financing. It involves all kinds of things that were foreign to me. And I said, I don't, I don't really know where to begin. He says, well, let's just go out and look. Go out and see if we can find something. So we looked and found this repo house. It was just all beat up and it was owned by a bank. It was a bank repo. And we, he said, why don't you write an offer on it? So I wrote an offer and immediately got rejected by the bank and got this letter. And my dad took it in. I said, well, I thought you told me that to go buy this house. And the banker that owned it said they wanted rid of it in the worst way. And they gave me a rejection letter. And he said, well, you didn't really think they were going to loan you money, any money. You don't have any visible means of support. You're unemployed. He says, why don't I, why don't I talk to him? So my dad talked to him and he, they said, well, if you co-sign, we'll let him buy it. But it was like a single digit house. I want to say it was like $6,000. I mean, again, 1973, most houses were selling in the twenties back then. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a junker. And um, so we set about remodeling it. He helped me. He gave me the direction and taught me what to do, told me what to do. And we went and remodeled it, put it on the market and sold it and pretty much opened my eyes to the fact that I could make as much on one property as I could make working pretty much all year in a typical job for that time period hmm. either somebody with a skilled trade or fresh out of college. So that, that got me interested quite frankly. And this was, so your dad co-signs with you, you get the property and then is it the two of you setting out to physically remodel this thing or yeah. you just kind of, Oh, no, doing we, all the work we do. No, we did all the work in, you know, I didn't have any money. He had the knowledge. And as I said, those guys, that generation, they are extremely uh, entrepreneurial and they had a lot of ingenuity. And most of those guys could figure out how to fix about anything. And he helped me um, do all the things we needed to do. The plumbing, the electrical, we just pulled the meter, shut the house down, redid the electric, rock paint. About the only thing I think we hired was the carpet, floor covering, and um, mechanical work. Everything else we did ourselves. Wow. And turned out to be fine. Worked well. And you were learning, obviously, all of those skills as you went, I suppose. Right. Your dad had the knowledge and the skills, and he's <laughs> sort of teaching them to you as you go. That must have he's been actually me. fun, I guess, in retrospect. I mean, I'm sure it was obviously a slog of a job, yeah. but... Yeah, he was, but no, he was the, he was the one, he was telling me what to do, do this, you know, let's 
focus here. Let's work on this. This is this is our job for today. One of the things that I learned from from him, and again, I keep harping on it, but that generation had the ability to take problems. They're the greatest generation were great problem solvers. Mm -hmm. They were able to take things apart and compartmentalize them and address it that way. Mm. So every time I'd be overwhelmed, and this this happened later when I was in the you know development world and building a building, and it was just a little mind-boggling. I said, man, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know where to begin with this. There's too many moving parts. I can't, I can't figure out where to begin. He said, well, why are you, why are you stressing out so much about where to begin? Take it a floor at a time, hmm. break it down, start here, do this, work on what you can understand and comprehend and deal with, and then move on to the next thing. And there are so many lessons that you can learn from the people that built our country, not just their generation, the generation before them and the generation before them. It was, it's amazing what people did in order to develop this country in such a short period of time. I mean, what are we 220 some years old and there was virtually nothing here, but raw land. Yeah. Um, it's pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. Well, that is, that is amazing. I like that. Take it a floor at a time. Uh, kind of reminds me of that what's the biblical phrase sufficient unto the day or the evils thereof kind of thing where you just got to take it incrementally right that's how else you do big things um e easy to say but harder to maybe implement in those moments where you actually are feeling overwhelmed uh, right. i i know that feeling actually and it's not a fun one <laughs> um <laughs> so Okay, you got then how long does that take you then? You said you you said you earned on selling that first house as much as you thought you would working a typical job. So how long was that whole renovation process? I think from beginning to end it was like 6 or 7 months. It was you know, by from the time we bought it, started working on it, demoed it, put it back together, put it on the market and it sold right away. Cause it was, it was an old house, but it was basically all new at that point. Mm -hmm. Sold right away and got the money. And I thought, well, um, this, this works, hmm. you know, this, and now, and you gotta also keep in mind, there was no DIY TV and a, mm -hmm. you know, buying houses and rehabbing them was not considered a valid occupation. Right. You know, when I can go to the bank, what do you, what's your job? Well, I'm rehabbing houses. No. What is your job? What do you do for a, a living? What's your career? Well, this is my career. No. What, what is it you're going to do once you're done with this house? I'm going to buy another one, but it, that was not recognized as a, valid career path back in the right by the banking world yes and so you know I we just you know bought another one and did it my dad would help me and from time to time he then it got to the point where he didn't have to put money in i don't think he put 
we he co-signed. I don't think he put money in, but he co-signed on the first one. Second one, I don't recall whether he co-signed or not, but about the third one, he he didn't have to. He still helped me. Yeah. I mean, he helped me for years, you know, mm. doing things as parents do, right? Yeah. But it was good. And then I finally got a chance to buy a duplex and I thought, okay, well, this is better. I got two renters in one property instead of one. And, you know, I, I would sell in the early, the early ones, I'd sell them all because they didn't have any money. Then I got enough money to keep one and rent it and buy one and fix it. And then I finally got to the point where I bought an apartment building, like 12 units. And that was a big monumental step, but you know, there is a lot of things that happen to people in life that you can't explain. So I can tell you just being lucky is part of it. I mean, I've had a lot of luck in my life. I've had a lot of good luck and a fair share of bad luck, but um, I bought that apartment complex, not knowing that the city was going to widen the road. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that my apartment building was in the way of the road widening. And so they came to condemn the building and they wanted to give me back just what I paid for it. And I got to thinking, you know, this, this isn't going to work out very well because I bought this, I fixed it up. They want to buy it back from me for the same price I paid for it. Then I get to thinking, well, they only really need a portion of it to widen the road. It was a 12-unit apartment building. They just need the end. So I went to the city. I said, I'll tell you what. I'll sell you the land. I'll tear the end of the, off the building. And I'll sell you the ground you need to widen for your road widening. I want to keep the nine units because they're stacked, three, three apartments in, in a row. And I finally convinced them to do that. So I sold them that ground and we tore down three units, but I got like half the money that I paid for the apartment building to sell the three units. <laughs> so then I still own the apartment building. So, I mean, sometimes, you know, you just get lucky, right? I mean, it's, I did not plan that. That was just one of those things that happened. I had to work to convince them to do what they ultimately did, which made me some money. And then the craziest thing is I took the money that we I got from that. And I had been buying properties from, I grew up on the South side of Des Moines and there was a lot of Italians on the South side of Des Moines. And a lot of them were my dad's age. They were, they were that generation and they owned these buildings and they were paid for. And I'd go to them and I would, ask them if they were, were tired of operating the building, you know, running it, managing it, collecting rent. A lot of times they'd say, yeah, I just, I'm tired of that. And I'd say, well, if I could, I give you an offer to buy it where you get the same income, but you wouldn't have to do anything. I just hmm. give you a check every month. Almost every one of them said yes. So I would ask them what they wanted for the property. I'd go back. I'd do a calculation and I'd figure up what the first month's rent, what the real estate tax proration and the brokerage fee would be. And by that time I had a 
broker's license. And I would offer to buy them on contract and give them that amount, amount down, which they really didn't end up getting much of anything, but they were out of it. And then I would go in and prove the properties, give them their, their uh, monthly payment. They liked it. Um, work for me because I was able to expand without having virtually any money. And uh, that worked really well. And one of those I bought that way was at another intersection where we had another road widening. Hmm. And I was able to sell the park, part of the parking off the building for, again, half of what I paid for the building. I mean, sometimes, you know, you get lucky in your pursuit, right? Mm -hmm. You have sure. to get out there and work, but, you know, luck does enter into it. So that those two things helped me a lot in the early days. Yeah, no, that's definitely a huge factor. I think my other friend, I heard this from my other friend's dad, that good luck happens where opportunity and hard work cross paths. Well, where they intersect, yeah, yeah. Where the intersection of hard work and, yeah, but, and that's true. I, I think you have to, you have to go out and get after it. Yeah. Um, the truth is I've been luckier in that pursuit than a lot of people that I know, but um, there's no way to measure that. Yeah. You don't, you know, I don't know when I bought, bought that 12 flex, I had no way of knowing that it was going to turn out. And we've had a lot, of, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had a lot of losses too over the years. Sure. I mean, things are not all straight line on the angle up toward the upper right-hand side of the page. So, Fortunately, again, you, your losses and your mistakes need to come later on. Right. If they come early on, you're done because you have no, you have no safety net, right? Right. Later on, when you've had some success, have some money, and you make a mistake, it's not catastrophic. Right. But if it happens in in the early days, it can become catastrophic pretty quickly. Right. Usually your dad, is. Your dad, he continued helping you with these projects as you're moving along. So he, uh, I assume at some point, obviously you're not remodeling all these things yourself. You start outsourcing pieces of that. Right. But how involved is he uh, during this progression? Not real involved. I mean, you know, he'd just help me. If I yeah. call him up and say, hey, dad, could you help me do this? He would generally do it. But by that point, you know, he didn't work on the 12 plex demo he didn't work on the office building parking lot reload i mean you know he he would give me advice but at those by that time you know i'm really just doing my own thing and yeah. i would ask him his advice and his opinion on things a lot but bottom line is that um at that point, you know, I was pretty much doing what I thought I needed to do, mm. you know, progress. And it, you know, it's always nice to have somebody that, that you trust that you can always call up and ask their opinion. And he was always there for me. Yeah. Yeah. Invaluable for sure. You mentioned this. I guess formula that maybe you originated this buying on contract from some of the individuals that lived on the South side. 
could you just walk me through structurally what that looks like? So you are, they own a property outright. They're currently doing the property management on it and that's their income. And you're just basically coming in saying, I'll buy the whole thing, do the property management and keep you constant dollars on your monthly check. Yeah. So, I mean, and instead of borrowing, side of that, are you borrowing to buy the property? Like how, if you could just walk me. No, through. no, they're carrying. Okay. So they, be, they, they're the bank. Okay. So they own it free and clear. I mean, just round numbers, you know, somebody back then, most of those properties were a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, again, you gotta get the context of time mm -hmm. uh, and values, you know, a hundred to $200,000 was, so you buy a little apartment building, you buy a little commercial building. The guy that owns it is getting, you know, whatever he's getting. I mean, you're he's making $10,000 a year. Back in those days, 10% was kind of the rule of thumb. So make it easy. We'll say it's a million or 120,000. He's getting $12,000 a year. So he's getting $1,000 a month. Mm -hmm. So most of those guys, they had no loan on the property they were paid for. So in order to buy, you, know, you also have to understand the context of time back then, getting a loan from a bank was not an easy thing to do. Mm. Times are totally different today, but back then you had to beg to get a loan. They didn't want to loan out money to young people to do entrepreneurial type ventures, especially if you had no experience and no capital. Mm -hmm. So today, I mean, virtually everything that we know today got just turned upside down. Hmm. Capital's not easy to come by. Capital's not cheap. People, um, are more accommodating, generally speaking, uh, you know, as far as a society goes. So I just go to them and I'd say, look, I'm going to, you're going to get your thousand dollars a month. But I'll, you got to finance it for me, you know, so that you got to sell it, sell it to me. And we call it, it was on contract. So you write a land contract, you start paying them interest at a certain rate, and mortgage payment at a certain rate. You're going to get your money. And I would figure up what I would get. So basically what they got was the first month's rent mm -hmm. out of that formula. So you've got the real estate tax proration, which they owed taxes that weren't paid yet. That's what that is. So that was an obligation they had. That comes out of their pocket, whether they sold it to me or somebody else. The real estate commission is something that they would have to accept because typically you'd pay a broker to sell it. So what they really ended up with was the, the amount of the first month's rent. So we closed on the 31st, first month's rent comes in. I would write them a check, but I would go out and collect the first month's rent from all the tenants. So that's really what they got. And then the next month they got their mortgage payment or their contract payment. Mm -hmm. And it was a way to grow. It was a way to scale without having any money is where basically what it was. Mm -hmm. 
or experience or credit. And it worked really well for me at that point in my career when I was young. I mean, heck, I was in my 20s. Didn't have any money, didn't have any experience, and banks were very difficult to deal with at that point. So you're kind of circumventing the bank in this model. You're just yeah, they're not involved at all. Yeah, so they're selling the property to you, but you it's kind of on a not an earnout basis. Well, the owner, the owner's selling it to me. Yeah, and they're and they're financing it. Got it. The seller's financing it. That's what it's that's what it's about, and they get paid. You know, they're making as much money as they were making by running the property but they didn't have to invest in repairs and maintenance and they didn't have to release and they have to, didn't have to chase tenants for payment. Got it. So then I you're expanding your real estate footprint, but not off your own balance sheet really, because you're not putting up the money, right? You're paying it over time. Right. And then, and then what opportunity did that give you? You now had the opportunity to go in and improve the property and increase rents. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we go in and improve it. You know, and improve the physical, you know, improvements on the property, improve the leasing, lease it to tenants that might pay a little more rent when the lease is rolled over. Um, do all those types of things to improve the property. And all the time being absolutely 100% sure that I was always paying the contract holder their payment on time, mm-hmm. 100%, because they all talk. Mm-hmm. And so once you did it a few times, they would all talk. They would ask, is this guy any good? Oh, yeah, I sold a building to him. He pays me every month like clockwork. Well, it makes it a lot easier for me to continue to do that. And so always make sure we paid everybody um, on time. And it, I mean, the system worked. I mean, it worked for quite a while system wouldn't work today. I don't think that that system would get you very far, but back in those days, it worked just fine. Hmm. What, and it wouldn't work today for the reasons you mentioned earlier, where everything's different now, like capitals. Oh, it it wouldn't work today because very few people own properties without a mortgage. Right. Right. Makes sense. Number two, um, you know, they've, most properties have turned over, you know, the, there was not that many people that were real estate investors back then. So you didn't have that much competition today. You got so much money chasing real estate that Uh finding properties that are out there owned by somebody that's owned it for 30 years and has no mortgage on it. Probably be hard to do, hard to find. And, And if you could find it, getting them to sell it to you that way would be difficult. Probably. I just don't, I think the way, things evolve for me would not be the, a very easy path today just because it's a different world. Yeah. It's yeah. not 1970s, you know, it's 2020s and yeah. the world's changed. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. 
You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> and I give a company some money in case shit happens. <laughs> now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's Industry Day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. All right, you're doing, you start with a repo house, you get into duplexes, then the apartment complexes, you start doing this buying on contract model. When do you cross the chasm from residential real estate to commercial real estate investment and development? Well, I, I, I had always, I mean, I was heading that direction. That's why I was buying those little buildings from people. Trying to improve them in every way, physically and financially. And so, you know, I just wanted to, the apartments were difficult to manage mm -hmm. from a small business perspective. I mean, on the South side of Des Moines, it took a lot of manpower to keep them going and released and remodeled and 
And I got to thinking, well, it's going to be a lot easier to deal with these commercial buildings because you don't have people businesses, right? So they don't move in and out as frequently as some guy loses his job at John Deere on the line, just packs up and moves out. Mm -hmm. SOL. Mm -hmm. So I get to thinking, well, that's going to be a lot easier for me to manage, you know, the, the commercial stuff rather than the residential stuff properties. And so I get to focusing on that and bought a building from a bank, a repo building that was completely vacant and leased it, sold it, and, and it worked out really well. And and I'm going to work one day and I stop at a um, gas station and I'm thinking, you know, they're they're expanding these all the time. I mean, they're convenience stores at that point. They're early model convenience stores. And um, I get to thinking, well, these guys got to, if they're going to expand dramatically, most of the, back then, you know, it was not the same as it is today. You don't have these huge chains. You know, you had lots of smaller companies that were regional or local in nature. So there was one company that was that was an Iowa company that had started in a small town, moved to Des Moines, and they were expanding. So I got to thinking, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to them, see if we can if I can convince them to let me do some of their real estate because again, you know, they've got this whole organization working to provide the product. If anything I learned in college rings true, it was that most businesses' second largest expense is real estate behind their employees. Maybe I can get a piece of that. So I do a little, little bit of research and I figure out that most of those companies were making returns in the teens. Now, 13, 15, 18%, whatever, depending upon the brand. And I think, well, you know, the real estate piece of it back then was 9%, 8.5%. So I think, well, if I could convince the owners to sell the real estate to me or let me build it at eight and a half or 9%, they could take that money, open another store and earn almost double. So now I just need to convince them that this model makes sense for them. And without giving up any control of the, because they're all real protective of control of the real estate. So at that time, NetLease was a very, very embryonic concept. I mean, not my concept, but it was just getting started and there was not very much of that going on. Primarily happening in the convenience store space because people were scared of the environmental impact of convenience stores mm. back then. And the uh, companies wanted, would 
wanted to retain control and the owners wanted the companies to retain control because no owner wants to be responsible for underground. So at any rate, I got an appointment with um, the owner of the company and I just said, I just want 15 minutes of your time. I'm going to ask you two questions. Answer is no. I'll leave and we'll, we'll have lost 15 minutes and, but I'd like you and your CFO to be there. So I go and meet with them and I say, Will you, can you tell me what your average return is on your stores? It was like 15%. I said, okay, that's question number one. This is my second question. If you could sell your real estate or develop your real estate for about 60 to 65% of that, would you be interested? Both said yes. And I said, well, that's why I'm here, because what I propose is that we would build or buy your real estate at a 9% return. You take the money, you've got all these stores you already own, and we'll buy a bunch of them, as many as we can. Take that money and open more stores, you're going to make the differential between 9 and 15 or 6% or grow your brand. It will help with your advertising. All the metrics work to your favor as far as employees, management, all those things. And they said, yes. And so we started doing a lot, a lot of that type of thing. And I started doing it for multiple brands back in those. And this was, again, you have to keep the context. This was in the eighties. So um, there were no net lease REITs back then to my knowledge that even came into play until the 90s somewhere. So it was, it was pretty new, new to the game at that point. And again, I didn't create it. I just took the concept and ran with it. So in that transaction, they own the store, they own the real estate. There's then selling you the real estate and then leasing it back from you, but maintaining control over the real estate. Yeah. So what it does for, for me is we, we, we own a property. We have no, no uh, management responsibility. The tenant retains control. There are 24 seven operation. They want snow removal 24 seven. They do it. If they close from two to 6am or 5am, they do that. They retain control of the, whatever happens on the site from a mechanical, electrical lighting, they just, it's just the same as if they own it. The only difference is that they pay us a rent factor every month, but nothing changes from their operational standpoint. And that's really important. It was really important to those companies that they didn't want to lose operational control. Mm. They didn't want some guy like me relying on me to, give them snow removal in the middle of winter in Des Moines, Iowa. Right. Because what if I didn't do it? And what if we didn't, you know, maintain the landscaping and it looked bad? I mean, just, so we try to overcome all the objections to doing it, which is what I was doing back in those days. And it, I got lucky that the companies, again, luck enters into it. Hmm. The companies that we were doing this for, all of them did well. All of them survived. All of them have performed. 
And, um, you know, we didn't have any of those bankrupt or, or, you know, turn the properties back to us before the lease was over. And so again, you know, you have to work hard, but you also have to have a little bit of luck that the companies and the, the direction you go and the, cho the choices you make are going to be good ones. Mm -hmm. And some of them you control and some of them you don't, I don't control those companies. I didn't have anything to do with the operations. So once I made that decision, you know, it was, it was on other people to make those companies successful when I'm buying properties and improving them myself and leasing them myself, that's on me, but the sale leaseback thing or the, you know, the build a suit world, you're picking a company, you're, you're picking your horse and you're riding it mm -hmm. and you're not in control of it at that point. And in the event that they defaulted on the lease, then you have to go in and kick them all out and then get it up to snuff to sell it and liquidate the property. So there's risk there for you, I assume. Oh yeah. I mean, we've had it. And you know, to tell you the truth, we've, we have not, ever had a, a convenience store do that, but we've had restaurants do it. Mm. And, you know, every time that happens, you lose money. Mm. I mean, it's getting back a purpose built property is generally speaking a money losing proposition mm. because it's not what somebody else wants. Mm -hmm. Purpose build it for this use, this brand, the next user wants something completely different. Half the time you end up knocking it down. Now you're down to land value. I mean, we've had sit down restaurants that we built for two and a half million, sold them for land value for a million, you know, or mm -hmm. a thousand. I mean, it just, that's just how it works. When, if they go bad, they go really bad. Mm. So hopefully you, you don't have a lot of them that go bad. You can't really afford. I mean, you probably chew up your profits on four or five properties for each one that goes bad. So right, yeah, you, you can't you can't make that mistake too many times. So you're doing a lot of diligence, I imagine, on the front end on the operation and the viability and. and oh, you know, it's I've you know some. Today, it's so technical, you know, all the REITs have research departments and underwriting departments. I mean, keep in mind, I was just a guy, you know, the research that I was doing was pretty nominal mm. back in the, back in the eighties or early nine. I mean, I don't looking at a financial statement, trying to analyze that talking to their banker, you know, trying to get store sales. I mean, that's basically the amount of due diligence you could do. And then a lot of it was just intuition and operationally, you know, you look at it and you say, these guys are doing a really good job. Hmm. People love coming to this brand. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a risk with them. I think they're winners. That doesn't mean they will be, doesn't mean they won't be. Some of it's just, how is this brand perceived in the market? Right. They fortunately, the ones that we chose were perceived well and have done well. So again, there's, there's no silver bullet. You right, can't right. just 
there's nothing you can do to eliminate risk out of any investment. They all have certain degree of risk, whether it's location, and it, we had one property that where the in Phoenix where they changed the exit off the 101 and crushed the store. I mean, the store, you know, the the user moved to the new new exit ramp and their lease expired and we ended up with a dead store. I mean, that's just part of the risk of doing what we do. I wasn't mad at them. I mean, and they lived out their lease term, so there's nothing to be upset about. But we had a property where we had improvements for a convenience store that's on a road that no longer connects to the 101. <laughs> you know, it was just, and so we ended up, again, selling up for land value, which was another, you know, million some dollar loss. But again, that's part of it. That, right. The more, anybody that tells you that they're in, I don't care if it's real estate, cars, stocks, and bonds, that they never lose money. They've never made a mistake. They're either doing no business or lying. I don't care who it is. Warren Buffett's not that good. Nobody's that good. And so if you're doing a fair amount of business, you will make mistakes and you will get your nose bloodied and it will happen. The key is to not let it get you down, not let it happen to you, as I mentioned earlier, early in your career when you have no safety net uh -huh. and learn from the mistake, learn from it. And hopefully it will serve you well going forward. But I don't know what, you know, just like I didn't know that they were going to expand the road and take off part of my apartment building. And I'm, that was a windfall. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you plan for that. You don't know what cities are going to do. I didn't know that ADOT was going to move the exit ramp off of the 101. Mm. Some of it's just luck. And yeah. I don't know how to quantify that other than, Sometimes it goes your way and sometimes it goes against you. Yeah, that's fortunately almost from, fortunately for me, the bad luck happened after I was able to withstand it. Right, right. That's right. the key. Yeah, yeah. Almost the distinguishing feature between risk and uncertainty, perhaps, is that, you know, risk presumably you can quantify to some extent, at least estimate. But uncertainty, I mean, those are those are the unknown unknowns, right? Just shit's going to happen sometimes. Um, is there a particular loss that comes to mind or doesn't have to be a financial loss necessarily, but any failure or failing that's happened along the way that, that stands out to you and, and a lesson you took away from it? Are you, are you talking, are you talking financial business, personal, I would what say are, what's uh, the, just business what or financial, probably focus just a, along the line of your, your career path. But, but I'm happy to go any direction you want. If you think something, I, I'm trying to get well, to the lesson I mean, where you earned the wisdom is what I was really trying to get to. You know, I've, I've made lots of mistakes along the way. The financial losses, I always view it. I can always make more money. Yeah. There's never, there's never been a financial loss that I couldn't know. Just get out and work harder. And four kids and a wife, virtually no real money. 
the early days, which I didn't touch on, but when, after, when I was buying those buildings from the apartments and all that, and I got married and then our first kids were twins, I just frankly was not making enough money to survive. Mm. We just, I just was not, we weren't making enough money to live. So I took a job uh, working on the railroad. I go in at four o'clock at night and work till one or two in the morning, come home, go to sleep, get up, do real estate, go back to work at four, work to one or two, just to, just to survive. And that was a period of time where we just, I just was not, it didn't happen immediately for me. It was not like the, that fixing up the houses worked really well. When you're a young guy, you're single, you have very little expense. You're living on your own. You need money for food, gas, and to go out with your friends on Friday and Saturday night and the story, mm-hmm. pay your rent or pay for mortgage. Once I got married and then all of a sudden had kids and I had a wife and then all of a sudden two kids, now you got four people trying to live off. That did not work. You know, the metrics of what I was making wasn't nearly enough to pay for diapers and formula and mm. all the things that, you know, I had to do. So that's what I did and um, did it for as long as I could stand it. And um, so that I had some initial success, then some initial failures. I don't know. Failures was the right terminology. It might be more. Yeah. Initial, you know, downtime where I really wasn't clicking to the extent I needed to be. Mm -hmm. And then um, I just decided, you know, I'm sitting out on a track in the middle of Iowa um, on the switch crew in the middle of the winter. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this, this can't go on. I got to, I got to do something. I can't work full time at the railroad and half time or three quarters time in real estate. I got to do something better. I just decided I'm going to go back. I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to zero in on real estate and I'm going to find a way to make it work. I don't care what it is. I'm going to make it work. My wife said, you know, you should just give it up. Get a real job. Go do something where we we don't have to worry about whether we're going to survive or not. Now, keep in mind, this was back when I was 20, whatever, 26 or seven. Mm-hmm. And But the point is, I think for all of us, at, there's an inflection point in your life where you decide, I'm going to do this whatever that is. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to take do whatever it takes to get through law school. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get through med school. Whatever it is, but there's an inflection point where people decide, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make a this is I'm going to make a career out of this. 
And so that's what I did. And I came back and quit the railroad and I just zeroed in and just did whatever I needed to do. I mean, I just brokered, bought, sold, remodeled, you name it. And the story I just told about the C stores came after this, you know, that was after the, mm. you know, that was probably in my early thirties then, you know, by the time I came to that realization that I need to work with big companies who were growing and expanding and needing in those days, they needed people like me. As crazy as that sounds, they needed 30 something year old real estate guys to help them grow their business because the people with real money, the CalPERS of the world and the principal financials of the world, they wouldn't even look at them. They wouldn't give them a, a time of day. So they were they needed little people like me. Now, today, we still deal with those companies, but if they do that, they make one phone call to an institution. They sell whatever they sell, want to sell with one phone call. They don't call me anymore and they don't need me. Hmm. But the point is we all go through these different periods where we're valuable to a certain class of user product, whatever it may be. And then we either grow out of it or they grow out of us. And in that particular instance, those companies have grown out of me. I haven't necessarily grown out of them, but that's okay. Cause we still are doing business with them and it's allowed us to do business with other companies. So we're doing business with, I don't know how many you know, companies we have now. We have 175 properties. Um, we probably have 60, 70 different companies we do business with. So it's all, it it's worked fine. But my point is, is that you can't, nothing stays, nothing stays constant, mm-hmm. right? You always have to be looking for the next opportunity. Um, we have benefited from those relationships and the ones that are honest will admit that they benefited from working with companies like ours back then. So it, it's, uh, it's interesting to see the evolution over time of way things work and way companies grow. Yeah. But can imagine. So you said something to me offline earlier that it was, I think you said it like this, figuring out how to leverage expertise, thought, and capital. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you, you leave the railroad and then you just decide you're going to do this sort of come hell or high water, right? You just get scrappy right. and make it work. Um, and man, there's really something to that. Like, I don't know that I don't know that there's a real success story out there that doesn't have some ingredient of that. So the, the inflection point, as you described, um, what is it? So today, I guess we should talk about what you do today. You basically have, you've, you got into the early days of this triple net lease, sell lease back model. And that's what you have continued to do through to today. Um, and now that's what made you guys a super regional kind of real estate firm. Um, have things changed more since then? Is there anything else to add? Or has it just been a matter of scaling out that, that model? Oh, I mean, it's changing all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's the evolution continues, but, um, 
So what happened was that it didn't change immediately. You know, when I quit the railroad and my wife says, what, you know, I mean, what, what are we going to do now? And basically, you know, I just, I just doubled down. Yeah. I don't, I was already working like 18 hours a day. The only difference was I put the 12 hours that I was working at the railroad into real estate. Right. And it didn't produce a lot in the beginning. You know, I mean, it was noticeable. I mean, we were making money, but barely making enough money. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about it is, is that I just decided that I am going to find a way to do this, whatever it is. And, you know, so, I mean, I did a little bit. I mean, we built houses, we modeled houses, we owned apartments, we owned office buildings, retail buildings. I just, anything where I felt like we, I could make some money, mm. that's what, there had to be an element of reasonable profitability that was, in my mind, tangible. And we'd go after it because mm. that's what I needed to do. I needed to scale up because as you know, I mean, you don't make a ton of money off of one small real estate investment. If you're leveraged, right. Mm -hmm. You make a little bit of money every month over a long period of time. So I figured, you know, I've got to find a way to continue to grow this in order to make enough money for it to be viable. I honestly never dreamt that we would end be where we are today. I mean, keep in mind, if you go back to the time when I'm working on the railroad, what's my goal? My goal is just to feed my family and survive. Mm -hmm. That was my goal, make a living. That's all I was after at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been until, you know, much more recent years where we're, we're buying portfolios and we're buying stuff all over the country and we're doing, you know, estate planning and all that. I mean, that was not on my mind. And my, my kids working with me now, of course, they were obviously either not born yet or just born mm -hmm. back in those days. But where we are today is that there was no grand plan to build a regional company. Mm -hmm. The plan was let's, I want to be good enough to comfortably support my family. That was the original goal. And I'm, I'm really big on goal setting and, mm -hmm. you know, so that was the goal was, I got to figure that out. I got to make it. So we're not, you know, always worried about whether or not we're going to make enough money to survive. And then once that got done, then it was, okay, let's build a nicer house and build a new house and mm -hmm. let's, let's have our house be paid for. And then we don't want to be on for our cars. So let's, you know, the, you just continuously challenge yourself, right. Mm -hmm. To do the next thing. And then it was, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can get a new, a new account. Let's see if we, you know, we, I became a Walgreens developer. We built Walgreens stores for 10 years, you know, and, mm -hmm. and 
can we build for, shoot, we built for Hollywood Video and Blockbuster back when they were, I mean, you know, it's just the evolution of it. You just keep finding the next opportunity. I mean, if you're a Hollywood Video or Blockbuster developer today, you'd be, you know, pushing up daisies. I mean, you know, you just got to move with it. Yeah. The market does not wait for you. You got to, you got to stay running right with it. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I mean, how we, how I approached it was that I, I just have to find a solution once and just work as hard as I possibly can to get, get these relationships, nurture them, build for them. And one of our key elements is we have a lot of good sized companies that we've done a just a boatload of repeat repeat business with Mm -hmm. because they know if they call us to do something, if we tell them we'll do it, we'll get it done and we'll get it done on time. And Mm -hmm. that that's important. A lot of times get it done on time. Our competition most of the time are public reads and there's a lot of things they can do. We can't do. Mm -hmm. Um, They have more money than we do. Generally speaking. I mean, we're completely internally funded. So, we're all just just our family office money. So they can do things we can't do, but the things that we can do that they can't do is when a publicly traded or even a private company wants something done and they want it done fast. We we can beat the reads virtually any day of the week of getting things done because you talk to me and I say we have a deal. We have a deal. There is no you know, research department, right, no right. analytics, there's no investment committee, there's no corporate council that has to bless everything. You know, I just say do it and it's done. Right. So that's our that's really our only our only uh, advantage, to be honest with you, is that we have relationships and we get things done. If we yeah. if we tell somebody we'll do it, we'll do it. That's great. Yeah, just much more agile and then a little bit well obviously you've developed the reputation didn't just come like you had to develop that over time <laughs> um but it's a it's a fantastic asset to have obviously what then was there an you mentioned the point of just this isn't working right working on the railroad working on real estate had to zero in on real estate and make it make that work that was your inflection point was there an opposite side to that was there some point along this path that you feel like oh we just kind of we made it in a way i don't obviously there's no final destination but you you achieved a point where you didn't have as much of this uh i guess it was existential stress right how you're going to feed your family and whatnot was there another point uh, on the journey that you felt maybe the opposite of that that dark feeling you felt uh near the railroad days I, you know, I would say it's kind of funny because um, a few years back when there was a big push for companies go public, you know, real estate investment trusts, small, smaller companies like ours, you know, the uh, mortgage bank or not the mortgage bankers, but the bankers from Wall Street, you know, wanted us to consider going public. And I, I thought about that and I thought, you know, 
we're not that big. We're bigger than some of the small REITs. I mean, very, you know, the really small ones, Mm -hmm. but you know, not nothing like most of, you know, most of them are and uh, 20, 30 billion, you know, that's, we're not even close to that. But the point is, is that I thought, you know, what are we going to do? We're going to get a whole bunch of other people's money and then we're going to get on the hamster wheel and we're going to run that much harder to try to make money for them like we're making for us. And we've already climbed this far up the ladder. Might as well just keep going. Mm. There's no reason we don't really need. I mean, we could become a lot bigger if we had a lot more money, but I don't know that we necessarily need to grow that way. Um, we're growing, you know, organically anyhow. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that I don't know that we, it's nice to know that you've got to a certain point where people recognize it. But on the other hand, I mean, I'm not, we're not trying to, be the next, you know, big re we're not trying to be uh, compete with them. You know, I mean, we're not realty income. We never will be. Uh, that's not our goal. So I think what we're doing, you know, for us works fine. We enjoy it and we don't have the reporting and regulation. And I like to answer your, I guess that's just a long way around to answer your question. I like, knowing that whatever decisions made it's our money and if i make a mistake and we lose a million bucks or two million bucks or whatever the number is we're losing our money we're not losing somebody else's money and i got nobody to blame but myself and i don't want somebody calling me up being upset that i made a bad call and i've made a few bad calls so I, you know, it's just easier, I guess, for me to think that whatever we do, we control our destiny. We don't, we don't have other people to account to. And I think that that works pretty well for us, mm-hmm. at, the, at least at this moment in time. So you, you had always- to get, we had to get to a certain size for it to work. If, sure. You know, I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't compete with the re. I mean, keep in mind we're competing under a hundred million. So if it's over a hundred million, we're we're not in the in the game. But to compete under a hundred million, there's plenty of deals out there that we run. So we had to get to be a certain size where we could actually compete. We've done, you know, a number of deals between fifty and eighty million dollars transactions. So, you know, that that puts us, you know, head to head with some of the bigger REITs. For those kind of deals, right? So that's fine. That it works for us. So you mentioned you're big on goal setting, and that seems like it's been pretty formative to your entire career path here, right? Like you, you get right. a spot, and, and maybe this is wisdom you got from your dad, right? Just figure it out, no matter right. what the situation is. Figure it out. Figure mm-hmm. it out. What? Where are you now with goal setting? Like what keeps you? going um i mean i spent a little time with you in iowa once and it sure seems like you 
are very enthralled by your work still. Like I did not see any, any slack or laziness or boredom. Like you seem invigorated by it. You're into it. You're on the move. Like what, what is the goal setting for you now? Well, I think the, I mean, it's easy to do what I do if you're me. Okay. And let me explain when they ask me to speak to high school seniors, when they ask me to speak at colleges, I have a really simple message for these kids. Find something that you're passionate about, that you can make a living at, persevere. It's that simple. Mm. If you're doing something that you love, it isn't, it isn't work for me to come to work every day. I enjoy what I do. Now, don't get me wrong. There are days that I don't enjoy it. There's things that happen that I don't like. There's parts of the job that I don't enjoy, but by and large, probably 90% of what I do, I love, and I love the challenge of it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's not work. It, I enjoy what I do. I like the challenge of finding a deal, negotiating a deal, closing a deal. It's just fun. Hmm. And so now um, it's a scorecard. Hmm. We had a big goal that we, that I've been just striving for, for years that we achieved last year. And so I just sent a bigger goal. I mean, it's just, but I mean, I, until I either a don't enjoy it or B I'm physically not able to do it. Mm-hmm. I'd say that I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, but that's the key for most people. In my opinion, if you find, if you can find a career that allows you to do something that you really are passionate about and enjoy doing, you're never going to work another day in your life. You're going to enjoy what you do. I like meeting with people. I like doing this. It's something new and different. I appreciate you asking me. Yeah. I like going to conferences and conventions and meeting new people and talking about the trade. Hmm. I, you know, it's just, it depends on how you're built. You know, the, I'm looking at our CPA. She doesn't like to do what I do and I don't like to do what she does. And that's what makes the world go around. Yeah. You know, and our attorneys in the other room and, she likes to go in and close the door with the documents and sit in there all day. That would drive me out of my mind. I couldn't do it. Day in and day out, reading documents and commenting and resp- no, thank you. But she loves it. That's her passion. Yeah. It's the CPA's passion to go through the numbers. It's not my passion. I like doing, I'm a salesman and a deal guy, and I like getting out there and doing what we do. I'm a little impulsive, drives them nuts. I will make a deal and wire out money and they'll say, you can't do that. Well, I just did it. You can't do it. We don't have documents. You can't. Well, go get the documents. I don't know. Don't know what to tell you, but you know, it just drives them crazy. And I don't know. I just, I just enjoy what I do. And I think that's the, it's really the key for careers. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Simple yet difficult. I think to find that thing for a lot of people, I know it took me a long time. 
I also sense, and I mean, I could be wrong here, but you seem to be a man that loves his freedom as well, right? That you, you know, you had an opportunity to grow by taking outside money. You didn't do that. You've more or less been working for yourself your whole career. Um, this is obviously something that's very near and dear to my heart as well. I often joke that I'm unemployable. That's why I do what I do. Just work for myself. What does freedom mean to you? Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting. You know, I have worked for other people. I, I, you know, along the way, and then I had, you know, an opportunity after I started the company to work for the biggest real estate company in town for a while. And that was, that was a good experience for me. And I kept my little investment company going while that happened. Um, but, you know, freedom for me is that I get to do what I love. I mean, this, I enjoy the, the real estate business. Um, I am one of the reasons I didn't do well in the military is that I am very independent. I think most people that are self-employed are, they don't like to have people tell them what to do. I am a type A, I am a self-starter. I am goal oriented. I do, I do certain things that I don't like to do only because I know it will help me get to where I want to go. Um, I think that's a discipline that people have to learn. It's not something that you want, you know, doing things you don't want to do to achieve a goal. is not particularly enjoyable, right? But you have to learn that that is part of the process. So, um, and having the freedom to do that, if I choose to do things that I don't enjoy to achieve the goal, I that's part of it too. So I I have to tell you, I think being having you know being independent is is one of those things that the American enterprise system allows for. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, no problem. There's plenty of good jobs and lots of companies for people that don't want to go out and take on everything it takes to start your business, run your business, take the risk of buying, investing, developing, whatever it is you're doing. So it's a good thing that we're not all alike or we'd have a real problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a great point. There would be no economics if we were all alike. Right. Exactly. Well, Richard, man, I have to thank you. You have shared quite a broad spectrum of wisdom here going through your, your life journey. And um, I know I've, I've taken away a lot here. I've, I wrote down a couple of things. A man has got to know his limita limitations, take it a floor at a time, and nothing stays constant. Uh, we're just three of the the pieces of wisdom that I took from this conversation. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, if my audience wants to find out more about you or your firm, where should they go? Herdrealty.com. Herdrealty. That's H-U-R-D realty.com. H-U-R-D-R-E-A-L-T-Y.com. And our website tells you pretty much everything you need to know. And I'm in a macro sense about our company. And, um, it's, you know, it, it's interesting 
to see where we've come in. We've been around 40 years. All three of my kids are working here. Um, and I love that. And, you know, we're going to keep on going and my, uh, the next generation will take over at some point. I'll ride off into the sunset. <laughs> a beautiful place to end it. Richard, thank you so much. <laughs> you bet. Thanks.